John chapter 14. We'll begin at verse number 12. John chapter 14, verse number 12. We only have, uh, we'll only read three verses this morning. That does not necessarily mean it will be a shorter sermon. John chapter 14, verse number 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is, and here is what God says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seat. The evangelical church is slowly but surely giving up on prayer. Prayer has been relegated to simply transitional elements in our worship services. The prayer meeting is all but forgotten. We give more time to one song than we do to one prayer. I'm convinced that the reason the church has lost its power and, in, and its influence is because we fail to pray. It won't be until we see prayer and the prayer meeting as a central part of our ministry that we see awakening and revival in our land. I just wonder what would happen to all of our churches if Christians stopped evaluating local churches by the quality of the music, the preciseness of the band, the enthusiasm of the children's ministry, the vigor of the youth ministry, but instead evaluated churches based on their devotion to prayer. And notice, I didn't even mention my favorite ministry, preaching. But what if we stopped evaluating simply on the preaching, but also on the praying? How many times do you hear people say, I stopped going to such and such church because they don't pray? But they will not go to a church because of the children's ministry. I've never heard anybody say, Pastor, I'm leaving the church because you don't pray enough. But I will leave the church because I don't like what you say from the pulpit. I've never heard anybody say, Pastor, I stopped going to the church up the street and around the corner and around that other corner. Because I didn't like, because the music was too loud. Actually, I have heard that. But nobody says, 
We just need, they just didn't pray enough in their church. And I wonder what would happen in all of our churches if we started evaluating the, the vitality and the health of a church based on this prayer ministry. See, I believe that a church that prays and that is devoted to prayer, the preaching will get better. Because good preaching is the result of powerful praying. If you don't like my sermon, pray for me more. I believe that if the church would pray more, then either the music will get better or we will grow up to stop listening so much to the music and listening to the truth behind the music. Oh, I'm preaching up in here already. I believe that a church that prays will still have a transformative children and youth ministry. But we got to pray, church. And so my goal simply in this first installment of our, this sermon series on prayer is to answer this question. Why pray? I think today our text gives us some insight into why we ought to pray. Look with me at John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Christ, this is less than 24 hours before he's headed to the cross. And he leaves them with this. The first thing he says to them in John 14, verses 12 through 14, he says, let me first give you the precondition to prayer. Let me give you first the precondition to prayer. What has to happen before you can have effective prayer. Verse 12, look at it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, here it is, whoever believes. Friends, the precondition to prevailing and powerful prayer is belief. Faith. Trust. It has been said that prayer is the key to the kingdom and your faith unlocks the door. I'm convinced that if faith unlocks the door, then a lack of faith keeps the door shut. You don't believe me? Let me see if I can paint a picture for you. Jesus Christ himself, he had been out performing miracles and he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And when he went to Nazareth, the, the record is he went to the synagogue and, synagogue and did some teaching. And his teaching was so powerful that the people in Nazareth were astonished by him and his teaching. And so they asked one another, wait a minute, I know that fellow. He's just the carpenter's son. I, I know that fellow. Is he not just the son of Mary? And the text says that they took offense at him. That someone so average could be so powerful in their teaching. And here's what Jesus said to them. He said a prophet is without honor in his own country. And here is the heartbreaking conclusion to this story. And he did not do many mighty works there, here it is, because of their unbelief. Friends, God refuses to intervene and work in the midst of unbelief. Friends, hear me well, hear me well. Prayerlessness 
is essentially practical atheism. Rewind, press play. Prayerlessness, a failure to pray, is essentially practical atheism. It doesn't mean we don't believe in God, but our actions make it seem as if God is not there. And Jesus here tells us that the precondition to prevailing and powerful prayer is belief. It, it, it is childlike trust in your heavenly father. Now, I didn't say it was childish trust. I said it was childlike trust. Childlike trust. Lord, we've had this baby in our house now, and, and this baby... She's so trusting that she, will, she lets Brianna do whatever she wants to to her. <laughs> the baby never complains when Brianna tries to pick her up. Guess what she does? She just stays there in her arms. She trusts the person holding her so much that she just says, I know you're going to take good care of me. When we feed her, she gets a little impatient if we don't go fast enough. But she never cries because she's concerned that this food is not good for her. She just receives it. That's childlike trust to rest in the arms of the person that cares for you and, and, and provides for you. And Jesus says the precondition to effective prayer is trust. Now, here's the thing, though. If faith is the precondition to prayer, then it is crucial that we have a proper understanding of faith. Here's where I'm going with this. It is important that we understand that faith is, simply, is not simply believing facts to be true. Say it again. Faith is not simply believing facts to be true. If faith was simply believing something to be true, then demons would be saved. James 2.19 says even the demons believe, and they believe so much that they shudder. But yet they're demons. They, demons even believe that God is one, and Jesus is the Son of God, yet they are still destined for hell. Therefore, there must be more to faith than believing facts to be true. What is biblical faith? The, the reformers taught that biblical faith has three components. Content, uh, assent, there we go, and trust. Content, assent, and trust. What do I mean by content? By content, I mean you have the knowledge of something or someone. You have knowledge of something or someone. And Jesus gives the content of our faith. Here uh, in John 14 and 12, he says, whoever believes, here's the content, in me. What is it that we're supposed to believe about Christ? If we just stick with the immediate context here in chapter 14, here's what Jesus has already revealed about himself. 
John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus reveals that he is the mediator between God and man. The only way that we can have access to the Father is through Jesus Christ. The only means to be in right standing with the Father is through Jesus Christ. And friends, hear me. There is no other way. Yes, we believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ to bend the way to be right with God. The only path to be reconciled to the Father is through the Son. So to believe in Christ is to believe in who he is, what he says, and what he's done. We're just talking about the content of our faith. Jesus, he says, not only am I the mediator, but I also am the revealer of the Father. Look at verse number 7. He says, if you had known me, then you have known the Father also. In other words, he's teaching his disciples, if you want to know the Father, his attributes, his character, his nature, you got to know me. Because Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the, he is the invisible image of the visible God. To know the Son is to know the Father. Then Jesus also says, this is what you also need to know about me. John 14, verse 1, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, Jesus says, I am united with the Father. I am one with the Father. Everything that the Father is, the Son is. The Son possesses all the attributes of the Father. The Son's nature is consistent with the Father's nature. The Son's will is the Father's will. They are one in the same. And because they are one in the same, then Jesus has to be God. So Jesus says, essentially, I am both the content and the object of your faith. So he gives us the content of our faith. Now, Faith also requires assent. In other words, faith requires agreement that the knowledge acquired is true. That, that, that whatever knowledge we have, whatever content we've attained, we must agree that it's valid. So we have consent, then we have assent, but those two in and of themselves are not enough. Knowledge and agreement are, are not enough to be biblical faith. You don't believe me? There's this, a popular sermon illustration that says in, eight, in the 1850s, there was a man by the name of Charles Blunden. He walked across Niagara Falls on a wire. He did this many times using various props to prove his skill. One day, he asked the crowd, he said, do y'all believe that I can carry a person 
on my back across Niagara Falls on this wire. Now, based on his previous success, knowledge, the crowd responded that they believed that he could assent. However, Blondin said, since y'all believe that, can I get a volunteer? <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> See, even though they thought he could do it, they did not trust in him enough to put his or her life in his hand. So there must be consent, there must be assent, but then finally there has to be simply trust. In other words, there must be, based on the knowledge required and your agreement with that knowledge required, there must be some response of reliance and dependence on the knowledge you now agree to. Friends, for us, biblical faith means we rely on the person of Christ. We depend on the power of Christ and then we simply rest in the promises of Christ. So then, the precondition to prevailing in powerful prayer is simply faith. Jesus says that if you believe in me, if you have this precondition, that precondition will then lead to some power. I'm in the text. We see the precondition of prayer, but secondly, we see the power of prayer. He says, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I've done. And greater works will you do. Essentially, Christ says, you, you will have the same authority that I have when you pray. You will have the power of Christ when you pray. That's how explosive faith is. Jesus said it this way. Jesus says if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and the mountain removed. That's what biblical faith looks like. Jesus says when you, when you have faith in me, you will be able to do the things that I've done. Who wouldn't want that kind of power? And church, this is what we forfeit when we lack faith. Jesus says, not only will you do the works that I've done, but greater works than these will you do. Makes people uneasy when they read that. Let me, make, let me, let me just help you here. When Jesus said greater works than these, I don't think he was speaking from a qualitative standpoint. I think he was believe, speaking from a quantitative standpoint. In other words, he, didn't, he wasn't saying that you're going to do better miracles than me or your miracles will be more powerful than me, but you're going to do them on a scope that I'm not able to do them in the three years that I'm here on the earth. Example, Peter, he preaches his first sermon on Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved. Greater works. The gospel went to places Christ never went to. Greater works. These are the greater works that they accomplish. And Jesus says, 
you would now have power to do what I've done and then some because now I'm going to the Father. This is significant because Christ is essentially saying that because I am no longer, though I am no longer on the earth, I'm not going to stop working on the earth. In other words, I'm still going to work, but now I'm going to work through my disciples. I'm going to work through my church. And this is where we learn that the means by, by, by which Christ accomplishes his works on the earth is through prayer. So we see the precondition to prayer. We see the power of prayer. But then Jesus gives us a very powerful promise of prayer. Verse 13, look at this. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. I'm going to say it until I feel like you get it. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. Whatever, I'm getting some more amens, you ask in my name, this will I do. The king of kings says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. The man who could speak to a storm, the winds, the waves, and the sea, and say, peace be still, says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. The same man that spoke to Lazarus and told him to come out of his grave says, whatever you ask in my name. If I was in the chocolate church right now, I wouldn't be able to preach because they'd be running around. This will I do. The same man that was killed on the cross and got up early Sunday morning with all power in his hands says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. I'm waiting on y'all. The same man that healed a woman with an issue of blood for 12 long years says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. I know why you won't get it with me because you're scared of this promise. I'm going to remind you that Jesus doesn't need your help. We, we are so quick. We want to press and, 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 and we want to compress this promise to make it not as powerful as it really is. Because we think, we say this, whatever you ask my name, this will I do. But then what if Jesus doesn't do it? Anybody have, ever had any prayers that were unanswered? But Brandon, you just said for five minutes, whatever you ask in my name. I think this is why we don't pray sometimes. Because we are afraid of 
What if this doesn't actually happen? What if I don't get my way? Let's walk through this real quick. Whatever. That's exhaustive. <laughs> I believe that Christ says whatever. He says that you can ask me for whatever it is that is in your heart, that is worrying you, that concerns you, that is bothering you, that is tempting you, because there is nothing too hard for me. I don't care what situation is in your life, whatever. Whatever you ask. This is going to be a fun series because one of the things that we have to deal with, and we're going to deal with this in a few weeks, is if God is sovereign, why do we have to pray? That's a good question, by the way. Watch this, watch this. If God knows everything, and the Bible even says he already knows what we need before we ever ask or need it, so then why pray? Because our asking is the demonstration of the faith we claim to have. That's why Jesus first said, that truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, how do I know you believe? Because you're willing to pray. You're willing to ask me for it. Whatever you ask in my name. Now, that does not mean you sign the end of all your prayers with in the name of Jesus. It's not a magical formula. No, 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 no. When Jesus says in my name, he's saying a few things. He says, first of all, it's going to be based on who I am. My, my person. In my name also means my reputation. That's why I just took four minutes of those five minutes to remind you of his resume. He healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind. If you ask in his name, based on what he's already done. But when you ask in his name, that means you also will ask in accordance to his character, his desires, and his purposes. In other words, we try to ask our Father for what Christ would ask the Father for. It is to be in accordance with the will of God. Ha ha, that's why you don't have to be scared of this promise. The reason maybe you haven't gotten what you want because you weren't asking in his name. You were not asking in accordance with his will. The reason maybe God hasn't gotten you out of your financial predicament is because he knows you will trust in your money rather than trusting in him. But doesn't God want me to be prosperous? Define prosperous. Another sermon though. Whatever you ask in my name, wonderful promise, Christ says, I'll do it. So then finally, we spend all that time to get to this point, this final point. Jesus gives us the primary purpose of prayer. Verse 14, the C clause. 
Here it is. Here's the purpose. That the Father may be glorified. Ooh. Maybe that's the problem in our prayer life. We don't aim, our aim, our, our, our purpose is not the glory of God. Question, let me see if you can remember. Josh lied to y'all, y'all, there will be a quiz. What is the chief end of man? And enjoy him forever. <laughs> the purpose of prayer is ultimately the glory of God. It is the spread, to spread the fame of God's name. To bring him praise and honor. God delights and answering our prayers because it brings him glory. Because the purpose of prayer is the glory of God, we should seek those things only that bring God the greatest glory. The goal of all Christ's answers to our prayers is the glory of the Father. And it is for this reason that he answers all of our prayers. Friends, hear me well. When there is no prospect of the Father being glorified through our prayers, Christ wants nothing to do with it. Church, the glory of God must be the very soul and life of our prayer life. And if we want to have a more effective prayer life, we must make the glory of God our goal, our aim, and our objective. The sad truth of our prayer lives is that all too often the motivation of our prayers is our own self-interest and self-will. The church, if we ought to be fully devoted followers of Christ, imitators of Christ, and our all-consuming passion must be the glory of God. It must be our all-consuming passion. The glory of God, that is. Anybody want to be like Jesus? If you want to be like Jesus, then being being so consumed with the glory of God means that you are willing to die if that brings glory to the Father. Jesus was so concerned about the glory of God that he says, I'm ready to be glorified, Father, John chapter 17. What was he talking about? I'm ready now to go to the cross. Though my flesh doesn't want to, because even Jesus says, Lord, will you take this cup from me? But not my will be done. <laughs> but your will be done, Father. Because he was consumed with the glory of God. Now, let's go back to this. I surrender all. Is every aspect of your life so much surrender that no matter what comes, as long as it results in the glory of God. 
I'll be content. Don't mean I'll, I'll enjoy it or I'll like it. But I'll make it through because I know the Father will be glorified. The glory of God means that sickness may come to your body. What are you talking about, Brandon? Y'all remember the story I told you uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. I can't remember. Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus. Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, all right. This is Jesus' homeboy, by the way. His ride or die. Pretty close to it. My best friend is in trouble. I'm dropping what I'm doing and I'm going to him to check on him and do whatever I can. Jesus waits a few days. Then Jesus finally says, all right, I got to go check on Lazarus now. The disciple says, why now? He's, by now he's dead. Watch this. And he stinks. Jesus tells his disciples, this suffering is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And guess what? Lazarus died. But Jesus got him up from the grave. Glory of God. Sometimes, just, just this is free. This is not even my manuscript. Sometimes, when in our prayers for healing, God gets glory when some people are healed from their sickness. But sometimes God says, I'm not going to heal you because I will be more glorified in how you suffer well. Chief in the man. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Jesus was so laser focused on the glory of God that he died on a cross, not for his sin, but for our sin. Man, dang, Jesus, I so want to be like him. He was so consumed with the glory of God. Thank you, Holy Spirit that he was willing to pay a penalty that he didn't deserve. He took a penalty that he had not earned. How's that for the glory of God? It was for our crimes that he went to the cross. That's somebody that lives for the glory of God. And that's where I want us to be as a church, that we live every day, every second, every minute, every hour for the glory of God. Jesus died, was buried, and rose on the third day. Now, he's at the right hand of the Father so that you can live out the purpose for which you were created, the glory of God. 
All of us are here are marked by sin. We have a terminal disease called sin. It results in death. But Jesus paid the price for us so that we can now have life and live for the glory of God. And all we have to do is believe. The only religion where all it requires is faith. And so for somebody in here today, maybe your response to this sermon is to begin at the beginning. Become the part of God's new creation by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for, for forgiveness of sin. Jesus has already paid the price. But for some of us today, our response to this is that we need to reorient our approach and our attitude on prayer. For too many Christians, the focus of prayer is ourselves. We come to God with this list of things that we want him to fix to make us happy. And Jesus says, you need to pray and then I'll do, I'll answer these prayers, but the goal is for the glory of the Father. So for some of us, we need to reshape our lives and say, God, I, I want you to be glorified through X, Y, Z. And also, we need to really do some introspection and when we, to really say, have we really surrendered all, have, have we really surrendered to Christ so much so that no matter what happens, We'll, we'll endure it for the glory of God. Are you really sold out for the glory of God? I'll start, stop harping on this when I see y'all surrendered. Because there is fruit that we ought to be able to see from heart change. So now we're just going to simply take our remaining time together to pray. To pray. Now, don't, 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 don't be so uptight and legalistic about this that you stop asking God for stuff. He literally says, ask. But make the aim of whatever you ask for his glory. Can you still, this is how you know you are aimed for the glory of God. If God doesn't give what you want, can you still show up on Sunday morning and praise him anyhow? So let's just pray. Let's just pray. I want you to pray individually, and then I'll end us here in a moment. Let's pray.